What is up, everybody? Hopefully you're doing great. Today is the fourth Sunday of Epiphany. Welcome. Again, hopefully you're doing great and everything is fantastic in your world. It has been great. I think I've said great here about four or five times already, but it truly has been great to be walking through the the liturgical church calendar as a church community. And we've just committed for the next number of months just to follow this amazing guide for us from Advent all the way to Pentecost Sunday and heard some great feedback uh, just from people as we wrestle through this and what it means to be the community of Jesus. And so we've been through Advent and the Christmas season and now in the wake of the Christmas season, we're in this season in the church calendar called Epiphany. And Epiphany is really a celebration and a time in the calendar where we just reflect on the reality that Jesus came to us, that Jesus came to Gentile people like us. I think kind of the Old Testament language would be to people outside of the covenant in the Old Testament and how earth shattering and mind bending and mind blowing it is that Jesus would come as a human, as a baby, no fleece diapers, no golden fleece diapers, no royalty really in cultural respect and comes to us and gives his life and shows us what it means to be human. And so we've just been looking at these epiphany stories, looking at psalms and texts that from the lectionary that lead us around the epiphany season. And we're excited to continue that and continue to just reflect on, again, this mind-bending news that Jesus is king of the universe and he's come for us. So with all that said, we're just going to kind of jump right in. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. If you want to turn your Bible on on your phone, because listen, that's the the new reality. Or if you have paper, if you're a paper person, open it up, Matthew chapter 5. Now, I'm going to take a sip of my coffee. Today's text is actually the beginning, and many of you will already recognize this, of something called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you've been around our community for any length of time, you know that the Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus' magnum opus. It's his most formative teachings on how to live in the present reality of the kingdom of God. And we've looked at this a couple times over our kind of church's history. When we were City View, we walked through the Sermon on the Mount, and then we've dabbled again. We're dabblers in this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, through Jesus' teachings even a couple of years ago. And really, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is this long teaching that's compiled together, Matthew compiles together, of Jesus teaching off this mountain, is Jesus' moral vision and ethic for his community of followers that he's calling to himself. Ultimately, it's for disciples that will follow Jesus in his way, and Jesus deals with all sorts of things within these teachings from sex, money, power, the spiritual disciplines, fasting, how we treat each other. It's really amazing. And I don't want it to be lost on us that it's kind of crazy, right? So here we are, thousands of years later, some of us tired, some of us stressed. Can I get an amen? Others of us, uh, you're on top of the world. Come on, it's the greatest, really, when you think about it, it's the greatest holiday of the year, bigger than Christmas. It's Super Bowl Sunday, everybody. This is a pretty great day for some of us. And then for most of us, we're just somewhere in between. You have bills to pay. You have lunches to pack. You have childcare to sort out for strike days this week. Yet, I don't think we can let it pass us that we get to sit here a couple thousand years later and lean in to the very same teaching 
that this revolutionary Messiah, his name is Jesus of Nazareth, came and through it flipped the world on its head, or probably better thought and probably better said that he flipped the world right side up. We get to lean into the same thing that he gave to these rural kind of backwood Galileans in Israel a couple of thousand years ago off this mountain. I just don't want it to be lost on us. We have this right in front of us. We know because of Jesus' teachings how to live. We can kind of latch on and cling on to the very same thing. Now, to build a bit of a framework here as we get going, uh, and this is, I think, central and key as we look at this and what it means for us, there was much debate in the first century, and especially during the time of Jesus, about what the good life was. Ultimately, this was a thing in Judaism. There was rabbis all over the place. This wasn't mutually exclusive to Jesus. There was rabbis in this world, in the Jewish world, that would come and they would have followers and disciples, and they would come with their yoke, which is basically their set of teaching. And ultimately, their teaching would be a particular interpretation of what the good life is. This is what rabbis taught. How to interpret Torah, how to live the good life in the present moment. And so I can't I don't think it can be lost on us that this is the framework. And also I don't think it can be lost on us that yes, obviously Jesus was divine and the Son of God. I know there's tons of evangelical emphasis on making sure that we have that correct, that Jesus was the Son of God. He was fully divine. But I think what's often lost on us in our world as we try and push, you know, push towards seeing, getting people to see that Jesus was divine is that we often miss that Jesus was the greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the earth. Like his teachings were, and the Sermon on the Mount does this, it's a culmination of this, were freaking brilliant. And sometimes for the divinity of Jesus, we just often forget how amazingly put these teachings are, how subversive they were in their moment. Was Jesus more than a teacher? Of course, Jesus was more than a teacher, but he was a teacher of a particular way nonetheless. And there should be room for us to just remember that Jesus, this great teacher, is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he is also, just like his contemporaries and the rabbis of the day, he too is clarifying what the good life is. He's clarifying what his interpretation of the good life is and what he actually has to say about this. And what's really crazy is that he did this in really concrete local ways where he used all sorts of things from the immediate surroundings to teach the people. In an agrarian culture, he used this. And he just used ordinary kind of signs and symbols and events to teach the people. And I don't want that to be lost in us as we engage this. So let's read together. Matthew chapter 5, we'll start in verse 1. And let's just lean into what Jesus has to say here. Verse 1 says this. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them. Now just to point out here, just before we read where uh, what Matthew records further here, is teachers normally would stand to read And then they would sit to teach. And so even that little caveat that Matthew is putting in there, that Jesus sat down to teach, is a really, I think, an important thing for us to kind of catch. Jesus is in teaching mode here. He's going to lead his disciples and those listening on into his way and into his teachings. And then he says this, verse 3. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the reading of God's word. Okay. Now as we read this, one thing that comes to mind again for me is just the reality that we are once again, once again, and this happens over and over, confronted with how important language is in the Bible. And if you've been around, we wrestle through this a lot. And the reality is, is these teachings and these writings were in uh, Koine Greek written in the first century by, uh, Ma- in this case, Matthew as an author. And we've got to work to understand because over time, language and culture changes. And what does this mean? And I, I think even here as we read this, the question that arises is what the heck does this word blessed even mean? Right? What the heck does this word, I mean, you probably hear it all the time. What does this word even mean? Because if we don't work hard to get that right, it's kind of hard to get a handle on what the Beatitudes even mean and and, and what Jesus is even teaching here. Because if we're honest, it can be a little muddy, can't it? This word blessed. The pinnacle of this, and I know you'll laugh at this, but the pinnacle of this has been over the last number of years, the hashtag blessed movement, right? Hashtag blessed that has kind of emerged over time. If something good happens to you, what do you do? You give this sign, hashtag blessed. I think the pinnacle of this was a Jimmy Fallon and Justin Timberlake skit on The Late Show or whatever. And, you know, I just, I think all of us have seen this, you know, hashtag blessed, um, I was even this week eating a hamburger at a new hamburger joint in town here, and here I am enjoying my lunch, and I look over, and on the wall, in an illuminated sign, is exactly that, hashtag blessed, right? What does this mean? Because through all of this, it's kind of interesting to watch. You know, you have the guy who wins an award at the Grammys with his song, by the way, laced with profanity and his music video that's basically been produced by the porn industry, and yet he'll get up and say he's what? Every, let's do it together. He's hashtag blessed. You know, I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because I'm hashtag blessed, right? Or the pro athlete who wins all of the awards and achieves the highest goals, and yet you know, really, they see themselves as a god themselves, and yet when they achieve these things, they'll say, I'm, let's do it hashtag blessed. Now, I don't know about you. I'm edging into my late 30s, um, trying to grow out a little bit of a sweet beard here, and there's gray hairs popping in it all over the place. I'm reminded of this daily. But I just feel like as you follow Jesus, and as I've followed Jesus for a number of years, that a little bit, even in the accrued years, that wisdom comes a little bit. Now, a side note, you can be really old and not wise at all, right? We all know this. Just because you're old doesn't mean you're wise. But 
I feel like this has been a bit of a growth in my own life as I get older. And I continually find myself seeing and hearing things and saying to myself, I'm not sure if that person knows what they mean. Do you ever have this happen? I hear stuff all the time. I'm like, I'm not, as I get older, as I've experienced a few things now, you know, as I have back pain, right, as I get older and my bones hurt more, I just wonder, now that I've seen a few things, and even in ministry, you know, I've been a number of years now in pastoral ministry, I just look at things often and go, I'm not sure if people mean what they think. And I see that especially with this whole blessed, hashtag blessed thing. What does this mean? On the other side, I've talked to people, and these would be Jesus followers, who look on this word blessed and they look on it really skeptically, like even suspiciously when you say it, as though everyone who now uses the word blessed is somehow hyper-prosperity gospel or delusional or, or maybe even both. It's kind of odd to feel judged when you bring up God's blessing, but there's, there, I would say there's a, probably a camp, you know, there's a camp that we've talked about on the one side who just uses it and they don't know what they mean. There's another side that there's real skepticism sometimes around this world. Word, sorry. Now, if you read the gamut of scholars and people who have wrestled, I think, importantly with this word blessed, you get a bunch of different ideas. So we've tackled this in the in the past, like I said, in the history of our church. I actually remember teaching this uh, on, on this on the Beatitudes and on this word blessed a few years ago. And I gave, in that moment, multiple translations and definitions of the word blessed from different perspectives. And by the way, this is not just to pat ourselves on the back, but I actually think in the teaching, we do a pretty good job here of that, of taking different voices and people that have wrestled with this and giving different perspectives. And yet, even when I did that, I still had a guy come up to me after the gathering, and he was a little salty, he was a little hot, not not gonna lie, because he didn't like one of the translations that I gave. And so we were talking, and I was like, dude, I gave five or six opinions here, And I'm not even sure, I'm not even fully sure which one I am convinced of, right? And that's that's part of this. So as we talk about this, I understand that there's different viewpoints and different ways of translating this particular word. So, some translate the word blessed as happy. As happy. Now, there's probably a problem in English translating this word happy. Because in English, we all know that the word happy is kind of shallow, mainly dealing with our emotions and how we feel, right? Happy is kind of like an emotional thing. And I think we've got to guard from that. Um, And I, I think you would understand that and know that being blessed runs way deeper than the emotional sense of the English word happy. But some translate it happy to kind of draw out their point. Others translate this word congratulations, congratulations. Now, uh, to be honest with you, this is actually the one translation that I shared last time that the dude I just talked about didn't like a few years ago. He didn't like this translation. But here's the thing. As I think through it more since then, I've really pondered this. And by the way, I'm all, I'm totally open to pushback, and I, I actually don't mind that at all. I'm You guys know, this community knows, myself or anybody who gets up and teaches us is far from infallible. But, but as I've thought it over the last little while, I actually really like the word congratulations as a synonym for blessed. I actually do. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a little declaration. I am doubling down. 
because I actually like this translation of congratulations. So here's my declaration. I'm confident, right? Right? You with me? My my opinion counts every once in a while, right? This is like free therapy. I just need a little little feedback here. Like I have a couple degrees in this stuff and I can form and shape my own views, right? Right? I, like I don't care what you think, right? Actually, I do care what you think, but that's for another sermon and for me to work out in therapy. But other than that, you know what well, you know what I'm saying. I just think as I've thought through it, that this word congratulations isn't necessarily out of order. This is a side note, but one of the reasons I kind of like this word, congratulations for blessed, is because think about it. In its purest sense, you can be congratulated for something you've received, which we'll get into in a minute. This is this is more the framework which I would work from. The whole point is, is that we are people that have received the kingdom of God. And congratulations in the Beatitudes I don't think it's necessarily a bad way of translating it. Anyways, that's just my opinion. Others translate blessed as blessing on you, kind of giving the idea that blessing is something that comes on your life as a disciple. New Testament scholar Craig Keener, and I'm sure he's a Keener, translates blessed as fortunate or it will go well with you. Either way, no matter where you land with this, honestly, as you wrestle through it, What Jesus is using the Beatitudes here for and what he's doing is actually using a well-known teaching method in Jewish and Greek literature. He's taking kind of the rhetoric of the day and teaching style of the day and he's using it for his own teaching. So in the ancient world at this time, both in Greek and Jewish literature, through the rabbis and through the sophists, a teacher would often use this phrase. They would say something like this. It will go well with the one, and then they'd give an explanation of that person, and then they would conclude by saying, for that one shall receive, and then they would give an explanation of what that person would receive. Make sense? So they would say, it will go well with the one, and give an explanation of somebody, and then they would conclude by saying, for that person, that one shall receive, and they would kind of explain what that person would receive. And so, kind of crazy, eh? So when you first read it, this style may seem unique and kind of exclusive to Jesus, but he's actually using a common style in their day. And guys, people in Galilee listening on would have tuned into the fact that, whoa, this guy is, this guy is teaching us. Because that was a common thing in their moment. He was using the rhetoric of the day. But of course... What Jesus does, as he does with everything, he takes, and you'll, you, you see this in the Gospels, he takes teaching mechanisms from that day, because he was human in a particular culture, but what does he do? Jesus flips it on its head. He totally flips it on its head. In reality, what Jesus is saying is that it will be well with those who seek the kingdom of God first. It will be well with those who seek the kingdom of God first. Now, I don't know exactly how you're wired, but uh, most of you that know me or were friends know that I'm fairly A-type. And as my life kind of gets, I don't want to use the word busy. I've been trying not to use the word busy. But we have four kids and youth sports and family and our community and obviously a job leading this church community. And it, it, it is, it's a... It's a full life, just to say that. The last number of years, I've fallen in love with lists. Anybody with me? 
I mean, there is nothing like having a good list in front of you, being able to cross items off as though you've accomplished something amazing. I'm a three on the Enneagram, which is an achiever. So the idea of list and being able to accomplish things is just like right up my alley. And so the, excuse me, the last couple of years, I've fallen in love with this app called Wonderlist. And by the way, if you hear anything today, that's really all you need to hear. You are welcome. For those of you that are A-type, I have just changed your life. We could pray and go home. A wonder list, which is an online app, obviously, where you put the things in lists and then you click them off and it even makes a nice little ding noise just to remind you that you've actually accomplished something. It's like sweet music for an Enneagram 3. Anyways. So uh, growing in this thing called lists, and I love uh, just being able to kind of plan out my day. So here's a picture actually of my list from even something like this morning. So I actually took a snap of it, and this is a picture from my list this morning. And as you know, Sunday mornings are pretty busy uh, in our home. I just use the word busy. But uh, Sundays are pretty action-packed for us, so I have to write everything out, kind of out. So this list includes things I need to re- I needed to remember before coming here today, and as well things I needed to remember while on site here, kind of in prep for today's gathering. So you'll see things like I needed the kids' lessons and the computers and chargers. I needed this is before leaving the house. I needed to make sure we had the kids' toys in the van because if you know, we've done this kids' classroom expansion, which has been amazing, but our boxes aren't in yet for them. So we have to transfer stuff back and forth from the church office, which is actually our home office. So I needed the kids toys. I need, we needed the iPad for check-in, T- the tablet for my teaching. Can't, can't leave that at home. Kids lessons with the, uh, kids lessons with, uh, USB. So our, our kids lessons are on USBs, making sure those were loaded up. Even right down this list had to, like, remembering to bring my clothes to change into, even right down to the nitty gritty, yes, ladies and gentlemen, probably too much information, but changing my underwear before the gathering, there you go, welcome, welcome to church, to little things like making sure I have my Chuck Taylors, because if I don't wear my Chuck Taylors, I'm just thrown off the rest of the morning, to my glasses, which I forgot today, to making sure that the kid snack is in there, communion juice and crackers, everything is ready to go. Then that list continues to when we arrive here, making sure to pray and prep with the band, though there wasn't a band on this morning, it was just acoustic, so that was a little easier. And then our 9.30 meeting with our kids and youth leaders, making sure we do that. In my list every Sunday, I make sure to put, uh, don't forget to smile. And then, of course, this afternoon, 4.45 p.m., we have Levi's Hockey. And then even the Super Bowl made my list. Don't forget about the Super Bowl. Who could forget that? Reality is I love, I love lists, man. And lists were actually, here's the thing, lists were actually a thing in the ancient world. You'll notice this if you read the Bible for like more than, I don't know, 10 seconds. Because things are just lists all over the place. The Bible lists people and cities and stuff all over the place. This was a method in the ancient world. The problem is, in my mind, is that I have all my stuff in my wonder list to accomplish a goal and to get stuff done. Ultimately, my lists exist to do something. And the problem is, that's not how the Beatitudes work. This is not how the Beatitudes work. The Beatitudes are not not that. So here's what the Beatitudes are not, because I think, again, many of us are achievers. We want to accomplish something. 
You know, sometimes we can even kind of morph church into that. We have a big vision and we just want to accomplish a bunch of stuff. This is not, this is, we will fundamentally miss it if we think this is what the Beatitudes are. So here's what the Beatitudes are not. They are not a how-to in getting blessed. That's not their purpose. The Beatitudes are also, number two, they are not indicators of who will be on top. Trust me, this is not, this is not what this list is. Three, the Beatitudes are not a list of virtues. Hey, I should really be poor in spirit or meek or a peacemaker. This is not like a list of like, oh, well, aren't those really amazing virtues? Four, the Beatitudes are not a list of commands. They're not a list of thou shalt, you shall be poor in spirit, you shall be meek, and so forth. That's not what these are. And I'll say this, five, the Beatitudes are not a be like that list. That's really hard for a guy like me who wants to get poop done. Anybody with me? You just want to, you know, kind of change the world by what you do. You want to climb, I don't know if you're like me, you want to climb the ladder, you kind of want to get to the top at times. It's hard to not at times view these in the Western world as like getting things done. But that's not how it is, and this is not what they are. So what are they? What are the Beatitudes? Scott McKnight would put it best, I think, when he says they are a countercultural revelation of the people of the kingdom. The Beatitudes are a countercultural revelation of the people of the kingdom of God. Or the great late Dallas Willard, love Dallas Willard, he put it like this, the Beatitudes are explanations and illustrations drawn from the immediate setting of the day of the, of the present availability of the kingdom through personal relationship to Jesus. In other words, the Beatitudes are listing groups of people that the kingdom of God is available to. That's what they are. The Beatitudes are listing groups of people that the kingdom of God is available to. So don't misread this. It's not, hey, I have to do this to get into this kind of group. It's not something you have to achieve. This is simply listing who the kingdom of God is for. That's what it's doing. And it doesn't, you'll notice, it doesn't begin with demands or commands or this heavy burden on trying to do the right thing. It begins with blessing. Crazy. Totally upside down. It's a list of who the kingdom's available to. So, who is the kingdom available to? Who is the kingdom of God available to? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, This is big because the common assumption at this time in history was that the property of the rich indicated that God's special favor was on a life. So in reality, if you had a lot, you were, let's all do it, hashtag blessed. I mean, think about it. How else could you be rich? This is what the people thought. How else could you be rich unless it was a blessing from God? So, you know, there's this whole blessed idea you know this it's almost like a karma like thing you are at the top because of what you've done and that is because of and god's blessing is kind of on you so think how countercultural and revolutionary it would have been to hear that the poor are blessed if you heard that it would have rattled you to the core at that moment especially in this worldview hey i'm at the top because i have god's blessing The Greek word here that Matthew actually uses for poor 
And I think it's important to look at this because oftentimes we want to explain it away. But when Jesus talks about poor in spirit, that word poor literally means abject poor. Like the abysmally impoverished. Those who are completely dependent on others to make it. The great scholar Frederick Dale Bruner translates this word poor as welfare poor. Another New Testament scholar notes that the poor in spirit are people who recognize that they are helpless without God's help. If you're asking me, I actually think in light of all this, probably a both and interpretation of this idea of poor in spirit makes the most sense, especially in its Jewish Jewish context. And what I mean by that is I think that this is talking about the physically poor, like ob- object abject poverty. I believe that's actually what it's talking about. And I also believe it's talking about the spiritually poor. And so when Jesus uses the term poor in spirit, it's the blend of the economically destitute who nonetheless trusts in God and puts their hope in the kingdom of God through Jesus. So again, the narrative at the time and culture, and this permeates still in our culture today, is that it's the winner who has God's blessing. All right, tonight somebody's going to win a football game, like the biggest football game of the year. And oftentimes we can just shape, well, that guy is, the winners are the ones that are blessed. And then yet Jesus comes and absolutely obliterates this idea. And he blesses the spiritual zeros, those who are spiritually inadequate. It was Luther who said, those who are righteous are the ones who feel the weight of their sin. And those who are sure they are righteous and don't need repentance are the ones who are the real sinners. And really, when you think about it, the Sermon on the Mount is actually more like the Sermon in the Valley. Because think about it. It starts low, my friends, where most of us live, if we're honest. It starts low. And what we're beginning to see is that each of these Beatitudes, starting with the first one, is an absolute reversal of cultural values. This would have been completely countercultural in that day to say that this poor in the spirit are poor, that the poor in spirit are blessed. So what's the promise for the poor in spirit? Listen to what Jesus says. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that for the poor in spirit, these are the kind of people the kingdom exists. Notice the language here. It's for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom in this context is actually present tense. It's now. It's all around us. The kingdom is available to us. New creation is breaking in. The kingdom of God is available to us now. What we'll actually see in the next bunch of Beatitudes as we look at look, look at them is that the Beatitudes have future tense promises, but this one right now for the poor in spirit the blessing and the promise is for now. As someone who has put it really profoundly, they've said the poor in spirit are blessed as a result of the kingdom of God being available to them in their spiritual poverty. So who is the kingdom of God for? Well, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Those who mourn are the ones that grieve in their experiences of tragedy, injustice, and death. And ultimately, they reach out to others in others' grief and compassion and help them in their experience of injustice, sin, evil, tragedy, and death. Those who mourn ultimately are those who suffer and they love those who suffer. Now think about this again, again, in the Jewish context, the kind of the time of the day. 
And remember, this is primarily a Jewish audience that Jesus is speaking to in Galilee. Israel at this moment in history is in exile. They're under the boot of Rome. Sure, certainly they're living as a community, but they have their oppressors over them. They're living together, but they're under it. They've lost their land and temple and king, and there's kind of this puppet king, Herod, and all sorts of political, geopolitical things going on. But Jesus knew when he was speaking to them that there was a sense of mourning amongst Israel. And yet those are the ones that are blessed. Jesus knew that this was a mourning group in many sense because their identity had been messed with. And what's the promise for those who mourn? Jesus says they will be comforted. Jesus' promise is that we will be comforted. This makes a lot of sense, right? Like one of the names for the Holy Spirit is this term parakaleo. Literally means the one who comes alongside, the comforter, the one who comes alongside us. They will be comforted. So who's the kingdom of God for? Well, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. It's not a term we use a lot in our culture. What, the, what does that mean? Frederick Dale Bruner says it like this of the meek. Blessed are the little people. In reality, the meek is another way of saying poor in spirit. What's interesting is actually that the first three beatitudes here, poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the meek, are basically synonyms for each other and are interchangeable. Jesus is getting on to something here. And Brunner would say again that the little people, that those who are meek, are literally those who make no claims for themselves before God or before other people. The meek are best described as the powerless or the oppressed. Scott McKnight would say that the meek are those who suffer and who have been humbled, and yet they do not seek revenge but God's glory and the welfare of others. And what's the promise for the meek? What does Jesus say? They will inherit the earth. Now, where does your mind go when you hear this term, will inherit the earth? Uh, because I've been reading the Bible for a number of years and I'm just, you know, I feel like I'm really starting to get a handle on the grand story of how the Bible works together. My mind goes to Genesis 12. I don't know if your mind does, but my mind goes to Genesis 12 when God calls this guy Abraham out. And his promise for this kind of people, for his followers, is what? That they would inherit the earth. That this is actually the telos. This is the end goal of the entire story. That God's people will inherit the earth. And we need to be reminded that God's people will inherit the earth. Uh, Scott McKnight puts it like this. If we put these first three Beatitudes together, we find Jesus blessing the oppressed and the poor for their powerful trust in God, their willingness to wait on God for justice in the kingdom, and for their devotion that runs so deep they mourn over the condition of Israel and implicate themselves in the causes of that condition. These are the sorts of people, not the typical ones, that are and will be in the kingdom. You know, one of the things we're confronted with is we just need to be reminded that Jesus actually says it's really hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' teachings all through the Gospels made wealthy people really, well, really sad, actually. This is what the picture we get. And this is so upside down. Actually, probably better said, this is so right side up, depending on how you look at it, compared to the culture's values. So who is the kingdom of God for? Well, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are the people who believe they can't live until they find or see righteousness. They long for what's right. They crave for justice. They cannot live without God's victory prevailing. For them, uh, right relations in the world are not just a luxury or a mere hope, but an absolute necessity if they are going to live at all. Now notice here that the first four Beatitudes all have to do with those in need. And the picture is that this blessing is divine help for those who cannot help themselves. A little different than believing in a God that helps people who help themselves. This is for people who know they can't help themselves. And so what's the promise for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Don't miss this. Jesus says that they will be filled. When we read filled, this word filled, our imagination should be filled with a picture of filled to overflowing. It means complete satisfaction. Think of a a cup under a tap of running water and just overflowing, that, that flow of water never running out. They will be filled to overflowing. Scott McKnight says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will find a kingdom society where love and peace, justice and hope shape the entirety of all creation. So who is the kingdom of God for? Well, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Now, often when we think of morality, we think of a lack of passion Sometimes, you know, in in our culture, but Jesus' idea of morality is embodied by mercy. Merciful doesn't simply describe the shallow kind of Western values of niceness and tolerance that we have, but merciful is concrete actions of love and compassion and sympathetic grace for those who are oppressed or for those who have sinned. Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you want to say it, says that the merciful are those who come to the aid of the needy. And even Calvin, yes, you're going to get a Calvin quote. I'm as far from a Calvinist as can be. But Calvin saw that the merciful are those who are not only prepared to put up with their own troubles, but also take on other people's troubles. And what's the promise for the merciful? Interesting that it's just reciprocal. They will receive mercy, Jesus says. When you think about it, this very much implies that the unmerciful or the unforgiving people will not receive mercy. Craig Keener puts it like this. He says, the Beatitudes indicate that one who truly repents in light of the coming kingdom will treat one's neighbor rightly. Come on, somebody. That mercy is reciprocated, that blessed are the merciful and they shall receive mercy. So who's the kingdom of God for? Well, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. So just think about this when Jesus says this. Think about the Pharisees and their outward piety and their attempts to keep the Torah. Then in the Beatitudes, Jesus seems to bless people like ultimately at their center where they're most themselves. It's interesting here that Jesus doesn't bless what a person does. He blesses them at their core, who they are. And probably part of the problem we have, at least in the Western English world and in our context, is when we hear the word heart, we often think of emotion and feeling. Valentine's Day is coming. This whole love is emotion feeling. The heart is a big part of that emotion feeling. Um, But in Hebrew, the heart when we read it, is more than an emotional part of someone's being. It literally means the human center. The heart, in the Hebrew sense, was the home of personal feeling and willing and even thinking. One uh, one theologian translates pure of heart as clear at the center. Jesus is blessing people 
who center their lives, their entire lives on God. And what's the promise for the pure in heart? For they will see God. The hope that we lean into is that when you and I center our lives on God, we will see him. In the beginning of this story, proto-human, Adam and Eve, were walking with God in the garden. Everything before them was unmasked. It was unmasked before them. They saw God. And the promise is, in all that's in him, uh, not, not as clear for us today. I know we have God's presence among us as a community, but there are some things where you know, we don't always see God clearly. In the new garden, the new Jerusalem, the promise is that we will be with God and we will see him. We will see him clearly. God's presence will fill the earth. And this is the promise for the pure in heart. So who is the kingdom of God available to? Well, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. A peacemaker is someone who is reconciled to God and knows God is for peace and seeks reconciliation instead of strife and war. Now, you may or may not know that during the time of Jesus, there were all sorts of Jewish resistance movements. They were called zealots. Ultimately, living under the boot of Rome, these zealot movements would kind of rise up. And at times, people would take the sword and try and fight back against uh, Rome, kind of seeking justice for the Jewish people. And they would do this through violence. And so it was a pretty hostile moment. When we read the Gospels, it was pretty hostile between the Jewish people and Rome. And a lot of times, kind of Messiah-like figures would try and come along and take the sword up against Rome. And then you get Jesus who comes to a group that knows they're oppressed in a hostile moment and says to them that the peacemakers are the ones who are blessed which would have in that moment been absolutely jaw-dropping to hear that, that the peacemakers are blessed. And what's the promise for the peacemakers? That they will be called children of God. The better translation here is that peacemakers would be called sons of God. And I don't think that's a better translation because I'm a chauvinist. Trust trust me, just listen back to our teachings. We're very pro-woman here. But the term son or sons of God was actually used in Judaism to connect a person with a character attribute. And so the term son of God literally explains that someone is on God's side. That's what sons of God means. And here's the thing. When Jesus judges the world, and he will, these peacemakers will be declared on God's side. They will be declared sons of God. I don't know about you, but this is actually the side I want to be on. I want to be on God's side. I want to be called a son of God with him, aligned with him, him as king. Who is the kingdom of God available to? Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Jesus knows that those who seek justice and live right should, and ready, should expect bitter unpopularity and persecution. We should just buckle up. We need to buckle up, friends. This is actually a reality. This is talking about the kind of people who love what is right and are hated for it. You are the ones that are blessed. Now, I always want to take a time out here, and I always feel the urge just to remind us that when we talk about persecution, that there is a difference between actually being persecuted and being stupid. Can I just get an amen on that one, right? There is a difference between persecution and stupidity. So here's an example. A few years ago, I heard a guy who has a ministry 
and he uh, ministers to people on the streets. He actually confronts them with the gospel and he has teams of people and they stop people on the streets and they give out tracts and kind of, you know, confront people with the gospel. And this guy was sharing about how he got punched when he was doing that on one of the street teams that were out there. And he was kind of communicating this as though it was kind of like a notch on the belt. Like to him, this was a badge of honor, if you will, that he got punched. And it was just so interesting because as I heard this, I just thought, this is not persecution. This is just being stupid. To be honest, and I'm guys, I'm a pacifist, but I would probably punch you too if you got up in my face. I, I probably wouldn't, but you get what I'm saying. It was like this high holy kind of, yeah, you know, we did this and we, you know, we're so persecuted on the streets of whatever city it was. And uh, I just got thinking, no, you're probably, it's probably just stupidity. And I think we need to make sure in our moment that we are careful to call things persecution, which are not. But the reality is those who follow Jesus, you will be persecuted and listen to God's promise for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's here. It's all around us. The kingdom of God in this promise is theirs now. Life in the kingdom is available now and for many, especially those who are persecuted. And by the way, there's been more people persecuted and martyred for their faith in the last hundred years than there was in all centuries put together combined before. These are the people where their hope is in the kingdom of God and they are the ones that are blessed. So, who is the kingdom of God available to? Well, Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Scott McKnight puts it best when he says that the persecuted are those who seek God's will in spite of what others want, who love God so much they are faithful to God when oppressed, and who follow Jesus so unreservedly they suffer for him. Inheritance and persecution then are both a love of God and a denial of self. And in all of this, look at what the command is. The command is to rejoice and be glad. I think Jesus says this because no matter what you experience now, your reward is in the king and the kingdom. We just don't think temporal. We think eternal. This is who the kingdom of God is for, those who are persecuted and seek righteousness. So with all this said, and this has been long, it's okay though. With all that said, Jesus seems to bless three kinds of people. And it's totally upside down. One He blesses those who are humble and poor. Two, he blesses those who pursue righteousness and justice. And three, he blesses those who create peace. These are the kinds of people that God blesses. The humble poor, those who are pure, uh, those who pursue righteousness and justice, and those who create peace. And so for those listening on in the first century around the mountain in Galilee, or for you and I today, we kind of land in a couple different spots, I think. For some of us, this is, and those in the first century as well, this is really, really good news if you depend on God. Like if you know you need God, this is like sweet music to the soul. This is really good news. This is the, Beatitudes are really the gospel if you know that you're in need of God. You know that you can't do it on your own. But also say this, this can be really, honestly, really, really terrifying if you depend on yourself, right? This is, this is actually really terrifying 
This is terrifying news if you are a self-made person trying to live your own way. Because everyone in our moment seems to right now want to be the goat. And by the goat, I don't mean, I mean the greatest of all time. But that's not how this works. This isn't about working hard or clamoring to get on the list. This is not what this is about at all. This is a call to repent, to turn, to give your allegiance to the king and to receive the kingdom of God. So with all that said, Epiphany reminds us The season of Epiphany reminds us who the kingdom of God is available to. Epiphany reminds us who the kingdom of God is available to. So with that in mind, congratulations to you who can barely pay the bills, who feel spiritually bankrupt like a spiritual zero. To those of you who can't get your crap together, God's kingdom is breaking in right here and right now for you. Congratulations to those of you who are sad, to those of you who look at your life and the condition of the world around you and all you do is feel pain. God's presence will comfort you in your deepest longings. And congratulations (laughs) to you who feel like the little guy or the little gal who feel like you have no power or social status, you have no good looks or charisma, you will fill the earth forever. And congratulations to those of you who long for the world to be made right, for injustice to be dealt with, and for every tear to be wiped away. Your life will be filled to overflowing. And congratulations to those of you who have been wronged and treated poorly, yet you still choose to extend mercy and forgiveness Even when it's difficult and it doesn't make sense, you have been and you will be extended the same kind of mercy. And congratulations to those of you who place your entire lives on God, even when it doesn't make sense, and even when people are really skeptical and bored and are walking away all around you. You will see God in the little and you'll see God in the big now, but you will see him with complete clarity in the age to come. Congratulations to those of you who seek and create peace in everything you do and in every encounter you have. You, my friends, are on God's side and will be with him when he renews all things. Congratulations to those of you who are despised because you follow Jesus and his way of living. The kingdom of God is yours like a new homeowner taking the keys for the first time. And congratulations. When people don't understand you, they mock you, they think you're out of touch with reality and can't comprehend why you would do something so ridiculous like give your allegiance to Jesus. Take heart, my friends. Be filled with joy. The kingdom of God is for people just like you.